So I've had a lot of strange jobs in my life. Um, I've been a dog walker. I've worked in the back room of a Western Union. I've been a valet. I've been an ice cream scooper. I've been a barista. I've been all kinds of things. But one of the stranger jobs that I had was one day when I spent uh, a day working as a personal assistant to an independent film director on casting day. So it's being a personal assistant, I did a lot of fetching, you know, getting coffee, getting lunch. And I remember that for lunch, he wanted Pepsi. Coke was not an acceptable substitution. Um, but a majority of my work that day was actually to be a kind of a doorman. I would stand outside the casting room where they were doing the auditions. I would take headshots from actors, and I'd send them in when it was their time to come in. And what amazed me was how this is my very first and only day working in this industry. People I was just meeting, people who even knew the director already would kind of cozy up to me and try and gain my favor. Like, it wasn't just friendliness. There were real attempts to, like, get on my good side and try and, like, get in good with me as if I had any say at all in the casting process, as if I had any say into this. But they, they wanted to just get a little bit of access. And of course they did. That's how the world works. It isn't about what you know, but who you know. In order to get ahead, you have to build your personal brand. If you want to be a published author, one of the things that publishing companies ask you is what is your engagement on social media, not just followers. How much clout do you have? How many people can you get to buy your book that way? And so one of the ways you get that clout is by networking, right? You either get close to people in power and influence, or maybe if you already have those connections, you try and flaunt them a little bit, right? No matter how trivial they are. So who doesn't love to name drop that one time you saw a famous person outside of Best Buy, or that some influential person was the babysitter of your cousin's best friend or something like that? As a side note, Susan Sarandon once babysat my father-in-law. Just throwing it out there. Right? So even saying that, it gives us a sense of importance, right? Like I am two degrees separated from Susan Sarandon. It, it gives us a bit of establishment that helps us feel like we matter, like we're important, that we are justified, that we are something. And this is all only natural, but what we see in our readings today is that God calls us to a different kind of way, right? Something better, something more stable than a life committed to self-establishment. God calls us to this way of impractical humility. So I want to dive right into the gospel text this morning where Jesus makes some observations about social standing and mealtime seating. It's important to remember that in the social context in which Jesus lived, meals weren't just meals and invitations weren't just invitations. Meals are the places in which social hierarchies were established and put on display. So hosting an honored guest bestowed honor upon your home, and who you sat beside would show your status. It is very much like a stereotypical high school cafeteria, right? Who sits at your table and at whose table you sit matters. So this is why when Jesus accepts invitations into the homes of sinners, it's such a big deal, and why our opening verse in this chapter saying that Jesus is dining at the home of a Pharisee and they're all watching him, this is a narrative hint. This is, the, this is Luke telling us there's some potential conflict on the way. And then there's another layer on top of it. A meal calls to mind something greater because the Bible speaks of the life of the world to come with these poetic images of a great banquet, a feast for God's people. And if the feast is for God's people, who do you establish who will and who will not be seated at this table? Who's going to be invited to the feast? Another way to put it, who will be justified, found to be in the right on the day of the Lord? 
Now, for the Pharisees, strict adherence to the law was how you showed that you were one who belonged. It wasn't necessarily about earning a place. It wasn't a matter of doing good things to sort of pay for your meal ticket, but about showing and establishing that you were, in fact, one of the faithful ones. To establish your identity as faithful, then you wanted to keep unfaithful Jews, tax collectors and sinners, and even more so the unelect Gentiles at arm's length. So who you invited to sit at your table matters. And these external markings of belonging were actually an issue into the early church that they wrestled with understanding. Paul has to confront Peter about this very issue. We read in Galatians that Peter made this decision that he would eat with Gentiles, but then when the sort of the, the Judaizers, he called them, showed up, he would then not sit at their table anymore, right? And so Paul deals in Galatians with this notion of what does it mean to show your marker of you, who you belong to? What does it look like to mark yourself as one of God's people? So N.T. Wright puts it this way. Many Jewish Christians, as we know from Acts, had found this difficult, if not impossible, to understand or approve. They were so eager to maintain their own places at the top table that they could not grasp God's great design to stand the world on its head. Pride notoriously is the great cloud which blots out the sun of God's generosity. If I reckon that I deserve to be favored by God, not only do I declare that I don't need his grace, mercy, and love, but I imply that those who don't deserve it shouldn't have it. There's a lot there. And here's the problem, right? Underneath our efforts to gain favor and make sure we're known as one of the good ones is a toxic notion that we are in fact good in itself and don't need grace in the first place. And anyone else that we perceive to be doing less than us in whatever capacity that is, doesn't deserve grace. But it's in these two lessons that Jesus gives on humility and hospitality that he just cuts away any of the basis we have for self-righteousness or jockeying for position and status. He calls those around him to stop worrying about how to put themselves on top and how to establish themselves and instead calls them to humble themselves. I'm going to read this part again. When inviting folks to dinner, do not invite your friends or brothers or relatives or rich neighbors in case you get repaid. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, I think we have to be careful here not to hear Jesus' words as like a cheat sheet on how to pass our final spiritual exam. The lessons here, don't sit yourself at the highest spot, invite those who can't repay you. This isn't like a delayed gratification life hack. It's not like, hey, you actually can still appeal to your own deep need to justify yourself, but here's the end route around the test. Jesus isn't saying this is actually how you game the system. Because if, if it's about gaming the system, then if it's all about delayed gratification, right? I'm going to sit at the low spot because my heart still wants to sit at the high spot, and I've learned that this is the way to get there. See, Jesus is calling the Pharisees and us to a different way of life, one in which you aren't guided by self-interest and self-promotion, but by love of the other. Following Jesus isn't a matter of giving up one mode of self-justification and replacing it with another, but of finding ways to recklessly give that is in fact a way to those who can't possibly return it as a way of life, because it is in fact the way of life. It is living in the life of the world to come. That's how you show you belong at the table in the first place. It's how you behave like one of God's people to not be so considerate of yourself and be considerate of others. 
It's a different way and in some sense a different table altogether. The ones who will be invited to the great banquet are those who don't care about their own status but humble themselves. And what Luke records in verse 11 is this theme consistent through the Gospels and in Luke's Gospel in particular that those who humble themselves will be exalted and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. In other words, status and success aren't the point. And this upside-down kingdom, this upside-down way of life is exactly what we heard commended to us in the short passage we read from the letter to the Hebrews. So throughout the letter to the Hebrews, the author is showing that the expectation of the Old Testament is fully realized in Jesus, but now we find ourselves in a similar situation as those Old Testament saints, right? We're looking ahead in hope to another fulfillment. And so because of what Christ has done, and in light of the examples of godly living we have throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, the author now calls his readers to godly living. And here in chapter 13, the author starts to give some particulars about what this faithful life should look like. And these examples, just the few we had in, in Hebrews 13, they run directly counter to the ways that we too often are tempted to find meaning and where we falsely place all of our self-worth. It's that classic triad of sex, money, and power, right? Any of these things can be ways that we try and show that we matter, establish ourselves, and find fulfill fulfillment. So the first way, the world often beckons us to find our fulfillment in romance, to seek first and foremost our own pleasure and self-expression. So they, they bring up promiscuity, right? And so obviously we should avoid adultery, we should evolve, uh, some translations use the word fornication, that classic word. But I actually think there are subtle ways that we don't hold marriage in high esteem. Specifically, I think we fail to honor marriage by treating it primarily as a source of personal enjoyment. I blame, among other things, fairy tales and Disney movies, where the ultimate prize is to find someone to live happily ever after with, right? That's the advice we give all the time. You need to find someone that makes you happy. The goal of marriage is simply pleasure. Sure that, right, we're not just talking about physical pleasure. We're talking about the goal of marriage is a place that makes you happy, that just brings you some satisfaction, as if that's your spouse's job, to make you happy. This is a setup for failure because it misunderstands marriage. Monogamy, the sacrificial work it takes to be faithful to one person, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, this requires humility and death to self. This isn't the same as finding your Prince Charming or your Cinderella. We often call it love, but what we've actually culturally turned marriage into is a happiness dispenser. And Christians are just as guilty, right? This is not something that like the world does, but we totally understand marriage. No, we tell this to ourselves all the time. And I would hope that Christian marriages are full of joy and happiness. I hope they aren't simply drudgery, right? But those are products of the self-sacrificial love, which is supposed to be at the center of marriage. And when we call people to find someone that makes them happy, when we call someone just to look for someone who will please them, of course, that's going to end up being a setup for failure. Spouses aren't the only people we're tempted to treat as pieces of our personal self-fulfillment puzzle, right? Because the world encourages us to make connections with people who can get us ahead, build quality friendships, right? We're taught to seek out those people who would advance our career or social status, right? It's common advice. Don't be friends with people who hold you back from your potential. Surround yourself with winners who make you better. 
In contrast, the writer to the Hebrews says, show hospitality to strangers because you might entertain angels without knowing it, calling to mind those Old Testament stories where that's exactly what happened. And you'll notice in those occasions, the hosts never got some sort of boost to their social capital, right? When, when Abraham invites in angels, when Lot invites in angels, the, the idea isn't like afterwards they go out and say, hey, I was the host to angels, and everyone says, great, let's give you a promotion. The, they didn't leverage it for anything. The blessing was getting to be the host in the first place, whether anybody else knew about it or not. The blessing was having the encounter with God in, in inviting someone in and showing them hospitality. And then the writer goes on, doubles down on this, and encourages the readers to visit those in prison and those being tortured as if it was happening to them, right? Visiting someone in prison risks being identified with them. At that time, there's not exactly a robust incarceration system in which prisoners are taken care of well. If, if you're in jail, you depend on the hospitality of others. And to go visit that person, again, is to risk being identified with them. And it's not exactly a, an upward mobility situation for you to be identified with prisoners. And yet, like Jesus' words about party invitations, the author calls us not just to visit, but identify with those who are at the bottom of the social ladder, as if you yourself are in prison. Now, it's true that the prisoners and the tortured souls were likely fellow Christians, because much of the life of early Christians was filled with imprisonment and with torture. And yet, I think the point remains that the church was not called to distance themselves from social outcasts, but to find solidarity with them. I mean, imagine right now, if you're a church marketing specialist, or if you're a marketing specialist, and, and say, many members of your congregation are in jail, you might not put that on your website, right? <laughs> you might not say, we are the church that stands in solidarity with all these people who are imprisoned. Um, that doesn't gain you favor. That's not a good marketing technique. But this is what the New Testament calls us to. In fact, there's no call in the New Testament to try and get access to power or to court favor with those who are in authority. Instead the, instead, the consistent call is to turn our attention towards those who are despised or powerless and live in solidarity with them. And in fact, the early church grew because they consistently brought in slaves, children who were left out to die, the infectious sick who were cast out of their homes, left to die. These are the people that made up the early church because that's who the church went out to. And they grew exponentially because they found that as they cared for the poor, more and more were in their midst. Not only did the earliest Christians reject grabbing at power, they embraced the weak and those who had nothing to offer in return. One of the, my favorite talks I've ever heard, it gave me insight into a chapter that we usually skip over was, um, I think it was Andy Crouch talking about Romans 16. So Romans 16, it's the end of Paul's letter, and he's just kind of going through some things. And, and you just get a bunch of names at the end. And for us, names are just names. It's like, yeah, Gaius, Tertius, these are just names to us. Except Gaius is the name of an official, a Roman official. This is someone who has power. Tertius means fourth, right, fourth. Why would you be called fourth? Because you were just a slave. You were just the fourth. You don't get a name. You're just number four. And so here at the end of Romans, Paul is saying, here's all these people that greet. Here's the people who are part of our church, the Roman official and number four. And all these people are part of the church. This is who makes up the body of Christ. And then there's this. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Now, this is a challenge we might struggle with the most. Because I think whenever the Bible talks about money, 
we very quickly run to like, we suddenly become lawyers, right? We look at every last word. Now, hold on a second. Money's not bad. It's only the love of money that's bad. So when I finally get rich, I'm just going to make sure I tithe and then I'm set, right? We're, we're good. I'm allowed to still keep on going after money as long as I don't love it too much. It's worth stopping, though, to see why the author commends contentment here. Because I think there's something sinister creeping in the depths of our hearts. This is what the writer says. Be content with what you have, because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? So what does I will never leave you or forsake you have to do with money? Well, I think money is too often where we put our hope. We feel confident because of our growing retirement funds, or we feel like unless we have the right amount of money in the bank, we aren't okay. That if we're not established, if we don't have the right amount of savings, we're not okay. And if we do, like, okay, the world's going to be all right. The love of money isn't just seen when we have this insatiable need to acquire more. It's seen when we put all of our hope and confidence in wealth. I don't want to paint some sort of sentimental picture of poverty. I think sometimes that's what happens in these moments. And the Bible's really clear for our consistent need to be in the business of helping the poor and alleviating poverty. There are very few qualifications on what it, on what it says about giving to the poor throughout Scripture, right? There is very rarely... A, uh, an assessment piece about whether the poor deserve our generosity. That's just kind of a baseline expectation for Christians. But I think we can very easily see our account balances as a marker for our well-being, allowing it to take first priority in our lives in the name of security. And it makes us no different than the Israelites who make political alliances with Egypt because they didn't trust that God would be their strength, right? We lose a kingdom vision because we say, first, I will get myself established. First, I will make sure I have enough. Then I'll figure out what it means to be a Christian later. Then I'll figure out what it means to live in the kingdom. But, like, i got to get my earthly house in order first. So in these few verses in Hebrews, we have this incredibly countercultural way of life put before us. And leaning into this way of life will crowd out the ways that the world normally works. If you really lean into the things Jesus says, if you really take these things to heart, there will not be room for you to do things the way the world does things. And so often we believe that we want to we wanna have our cake and eat it too, right? We can chase after the American dream of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and still be faithful kingdom, or kingdom of God citizens, right? I can do both. It's great. I can still establish myself have the suburban dream, make that my number one priority, and there's still plenty of room for the kingdom of God. Friends, what if God hasn't called us, or what if God has called us to a life that doesn't look successful in the eyes of the world? What if we're called to not live up to our potential because we've instead chosen to associate with the least? What if we choose not to maximize our productivity extracting every possible earthly good out of every moment because we believe that we have to instead prioritize the kingdom of God that's already breaking in, whose currency isn't money, sex, power, but instead is grace. In the church, we can easily identify when the world strays from a traditional understanding of marriage and sexuality. We see that all over the place, and it's not hard for us to do. But I don't think we see all the ways in which we have gladly and willingly walked down the path of personal empire building of personal success, of doing whatever we need to do to have a happy life. 
Alan Noble, in his book, You Are Not Your Own, lays out this picture of how we allow building up our own personal brands has led us down a deeply unchristian path. And according to Noble, he says, the thing that dominates our life, the value we all hold highest is efficiency, trying to get more and more and more out of life. So we rest because studies show we'll be more productive if we take rest, right? We, we, we play with our kids because we know that that'll make us happier. We end up doing everything because studies have shown and we can find out we can do this and we should take time off, not because rest is good, because if I rest, then I'll work harder tomorrow. <laughs> but efficiency will erode away kingdom ethics. When you chase after things that are most productive, when we allow getting ahead or establishing ourselves to become the most important value for us, then the kind of impractical humility that Jesus calls us to is going to start to take a back seat because one will have to win out. You can't serve two masters. In fact, I think the entire commandment to Sabbath is already, is already built to contradict our sense of extracting everything we need, right? That makes the Israelites very different from neighboring cultures. To choose to take one day every week and say, I will not be productive today. And to do so is to hand things over to God, is to say, God, you rested one day. And we're going to be the kind of people who say, you know what, we are not going to earn money seven days a week. We're not going to... We're not going to be as productive as we could be if we worked the whole week. We're going to offer a day recklessly, and we're going to throw away one-seventh of our productivity for the sake of God, for the sake of honoring who God is and becoming the kind of people who do that. You can see it all throughout the Old Testament law, ways in which you, you may not harvest all of your grain. You must leave things on the edges so that the poor can have it. Uh, it, it, there's not an option. This isn't like when you feel like it. This is the law. You have to leave room for the poor. And I think one of our optional readings this morning instead of Deuteronomy was from Ecclesiasticus. And in the face of all of our attempts to establish ourselves, the, the passage from Ecclesiasticus, sometimes called the Wisdom of Solomon, it kind of mocks us. It says this, How can dust and ashes be proud? Even in life, the human body decays. A long illness baffles the physician, and the king of today will die tomorrow. For when one is dead, he inherits maggots and vermin and worms. The beginning of human pride is to forsake the Lord. The heart has withdrawn from its maker. For the beginning of pride is sin, and the one who clings to it pours out abominations. Therefore, the Lord brings upon them unheard of calamities and destroys them completely. You can read just the book of Ecclesiastes if you want the same message, right? You can chase after this day after day after day, but in the end, what actually matters? How foolish we are that we keep building castles on top of sand and then are dismayed when they inevitably are washed away by the tide. That will come for all of us. I follow on, on Twitter, I started following um, a bot. So it's a, an automated account. It's a Memento Mori bot. Memento Mori is Latin for remember your death. So just every day, it just tweets something like, hey, remember, you're going to die. Just, hey, inevitably, death comes for everyone. This is the, uh, an ancient Christian practice, right, to do this regularly, keeping your death in front of you. Why? Because it reminds us when you build your brand, you're, you're investing in a kingdom that's wasting away. Sometimes I think we imagine what it would look like to be a martyr, to be confronted with the option to either deny Christ or be killed. And I pray that we don't face 
that kind of persecution, and we should continue to pray for those who do. But the word martyr just means witness, one who testifies to the truth. And so I ask, what if the martyrdom that we're called to face is a witness to the world that is obsessed with self-actualization and personal brands and chasing after prize, pride, and to witness to that world that the way that leads to life is one where we just don't care about those things, where we can choose to not have the most earthly success because we would rather invite the lame and the crippled into our homes, losing our social capital in the process. What if the martyrdom, the witness we are called to live, is one that says, I just simply do not care about efficiency if it comes at the cost of the kingdom of God? The gospel rightly understood can't be contained to the spiritual part of our lives because the distinction between ordinary and spiritual lives doesn't really exist. So what if we choose to be less efficient? Make less money, have a less impressive career, choose vocations that show the love of God to neighbor instead of bringing us more status? What if we cared less about courting the favor of celebrities and politicians and other powerful people, rejoicing when suddenly like some actor happens to give some modicum of faith and we're like, awesome, he's one of us. What if instead of that, we cared more about what the homeless people in our city felt about us? Because according to the gospel, their opinion of us matters a little bit more. What if we treated our marriages less like fairy tales where our spouse's primary job was to make us happy and instead like unions that bring life, sometimes biological, but all the time, hopefully, life that emanates from a home in which sacrificial love is the norm? What if we cared less about our rights and more about our responsibilities to our neighbor? What if we, like Paul, willingly gave up our rights? He says, I give up whatever I need to for the sake of the good news, that Christ has defeated death. Life is breaking through, and we don't have to worry about whether or not we're affirmed by the world and told that we matter. Because we already know that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and for them too. We must not build our lives on efficiency and personal achievement. We can't serve two masters. Be on your guard. Loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you is terribly inefficient. It will not get you ahead, and it might actually cost you some things. But to follow in the path of Christ is to say, the ends don't justify the means. I don't, I can't say I assume I know what God wants, and so I'm just going to do whatever I need to do to make it happen, right? Sometimes we treat ourselves like we're God's hatchet men and women. Like, okay, God, I know you want this end, and I got to get my hands a little bit dirty to make it happen. That's not, that's not how the kingdom of God works. That's not how God calls us to live. God says, you do what I've called you to do, and I'll worry about how it works out in the end. Instead, we follow how God wants us to live and let him take care of how it plays out. And what I'm suggesting right now is absolute madness. <laughs> it's to commit to what many would consider a less than life, a life in which we willingly choose not to take every opportunity we have for personal fulfillment, to choose humility associating with those who don't enhance our lives and maybe require things of us. So how on earth can we do that? We live into that confidence because of what the writer to the Hebrews says in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Empires will fall. Personal heroes will fail us. The towers that we build for ourselves are shaky and will topple eventually. Personal brands are ethereal. Fame is fleeting. How can dust be proud? And yet Jesus remains. The way of life that Jesus calls us to is one where we're committed to this radical impracticality because it's in prioritizing those who can't repay us, it's in humbling ourselves, 
It's that we're living in a world that is to come, a world that is even coming now, preparing ourselves for a great banquet where humble are exalted and the exalted are, are humbled. It's preparing ourselves for a world that is more full, more human, even better than what we might devise for ourselves. And it is freeing and it gives us more life than we could imagine. And may that be so in our lives even now. Amen.